Hello and welcome to episode three of Thoughts of a Gearhead. My name is Brandon. Oh, and I'm Lexi. This is my girlfriend next to me. So tonight's episode, I figured we'd touch on what my idea of the golden years of General Motors was. That's We're going to be covering 1999 uh, to 2007. And the reason I've picked this era of General Motors is, for one, it is one of my favorite eras, uh, but two, it's also what I consider to be the best time for General Motors as far as diversity of products, number of products, reliability of products, and quality. Also, you have a good couple of uh, really good styling from this era. Um, really good platforms came out in this era. And it was one of the better times to buy and own a General Motors vehicle. So if we're going to start with this era, we have to start up with the lineup of what General Motors had um, <clears throat> at this time. So if we're going to start with Chevrolet, obviously the flagship brand. And you have to remember what was all available to purchase in this era. So in 1999, you have the Astro, which is a body-on-frame, all-wheel-drive minivan with a pretty big V6, a 4.3-liter V6. It's basically built on a Silverado slash S10 chassis, which, I mean, it's kind of unheard of in a minivan. Most minivans from this era, as far as I know, are all unibody construction with subframes. So that was kind of unique to Chevrolet, and that was a very successful... Uh, a very successful model in itself. Um, you also you have the Blazer, which you know obviously came in the two door and the four door variants. They're essentially a compact body on frame SUV. Um, I'm pretty sure just the one engine option in America, which was the four three V six again. Great V six. Basically, if you don't know about the 4.3, it's basically a small block with two cylinders chopped off. There's actually a lot of interchangeable parts. Um, now, in 1999, General Motors had just actually released the Silverado, but they hadn't phased out the CK series yet, the GMT 400 trucks. So you could still go to a GM dealership, and you could still go and buy the the old generation of truck. You could buy the GMT 400 platform, but you could also go to a General Motors dealership and buy a GMT 800 platform. So you obviously, you have the CK series, so you can still buy the 1500, the 2500, and the 3500. I think most of the sales for 99 were probably fleet trucks and work trucks. Um, and then obviously you have the Silverado, which came out, which got Motor Trends Truck of the Year that year. Brand new platform, brand new styling, brand new engine. Um, <clears throat> a little bit beefier, obviously more towing, more power. The 5.3 comes out uh, in 1999. Uh, the 6 liter Vortec comes out in this era. Um, you also have the start of the uh, 6.6 Duramax series, which um, a lot of you Duramax guys will argue whether or not the, uh, I believe it's the 07 to 13 era is better, or the, you know, the 99 through 2006 era is better. But honestly, they're both great platforms. Um, so you have the 6.6 Duramax that comes out 
obviously developed by Isuzu for General Motors. Um, you have uh, the Camaro, which gets a facelift, I think, in this era, too, with the different headlights. A lot of people call it the Catfish era, which is, coincidentally, one of my least favorite um, looking Camaros, um, but obviously you have the LT1 that comes in this era of Camaro. You've got the C5 Corvette in this era. Um, you've also got for entry-level cars, you've got the Cavalier, which is their compact. Um, you've also got the um, Chevy Express, the full-size body-on-frame van. You can get that on a work van, passenger van, and those you could get with all-wheel drive too, which was pretty cool. Um, a lot of those work vans obviously only came in a rear-wheel drive, but the fact that GM gave you the option, if you wanted to option up, you could get all-wheel drive. Um, and then from Chevrolet, you have the Lumina, kind of the mid-size sedan. Um, you also have the Malibu, another mid-size. Um, and then in this era, you also still have um, that Geo brand, which is linked to General Motors. So you have cars like the Chevrolet Metro, better known as the Geo Metro. Um, and you also have the Chevrolet Prism, better known as the... Um, Geo Prism, which is actually a Toyota Corolla. It's very odd the way GM had this set up. Essentially, Toyota would build most of the car and General Motors would just put their badges on it and change a couple little things. Um, you have the Monte Carlo in this era, which is um, either two-door, four-door, full-size. You know, you've got the legendary 3800 V6 in this um, is just about, yeah, the Generation 1, I think, is still exists at this time. It would be um, 2001 or 2002, I think, when the Series 2 comes out, and that's the best series of that, um, of that V6. Um, and then you have the Suburban, which is still rocking the old body style, that squared off, um, <clears throat> more rectangular look. Um, you've got the Chevy Tracker or the Geo Tracker, which is a very interesting, um, almost like a Jeep Wrangler competitor, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Um, two-door, um, I believe you get in four-door, too. You have, you can get a drop top on it. It's, uh, body on frame. It has a V6 made by Suzuki, of all people, and, uh, a good little off-roader. And then, in this era, GM was still offering a traditional minivan, um, the Chevy Venture, which comes with the 3400 V6, which is the 3 eighths um, little cousin, essentially, or little brother, if you want to look at it like that. But a traditional minivan, rear slider doors, subframe up front, front-wheel drive, um, pretty basic standard construction. And I guess the reason why um, you... Now, the reason why I like this era of General Motors so much is really just look around at how many cars from this era are still on the road. Um, from this, um, we're talking 99 to 07. I mean, I would say as far as General Motors vehicles, you have to look at, obviously, Chevy, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, and the others, and you really start to notice how many of these cars are still left on the road with, you know, really high mileage. Um, in this era, too, um, Pontiac, another one of my favorite brands from General Motors, which, you know, rest in peace, is not with us anymore. But um, you have to remember, too, that uh, Pontiac had a lot of interesting options 
as well. You know, you have the Grand Prix that's out, um, the Grand Am. Um, you have the the Grand Prix uh, GTP, which is, you know, a 3.8 V6 supercharged, which that is... I guess you can consider that a sports sedan, and obviously Pontiac throughout most of its later life um, was considered the essentially the sportier brother of Chevrolet. Obviously, they didn't offer trucks, but they did still offer you know vehicles like the Aztec, which was this. A lot of people hate the Aztec for the way it looks, but. If you look a little bit closer at the Pontiac Aztec, now what the Pontiac Aztec did, um, along as look at a Chevy Colorado from 2005-2004, you'll notice that the turn signals, the turn signal lights, are above the headlights. And with the with Chevrolet, it's got the classic chrome, you know, big chrome bar that goes across, and separated is the turn signals on top and the headlights on the bottom. Same way with the Aztec Pontiac, kind of had the same um, design philosophy with that. So now go look at uh, a 2020 or 2021 three-quarter ton Silverado, and you're going to notice something. The turn signals are above a large chrome bar that's below sits the high beams and low beams. And then go look at a Chevy Trailblazer. And what do you see? The accent lights and turn signals sit above a large chrome bar with headlights below the large chrome bar. And everybody hates the way the Pontiac Aztec looks. And I this wasn't supposed to turn into a Pontiac Aztec rant. That was going to be an episode in itself, which it still will be. But you have um, people saying... You know, it depends. This is all personal opinion. But personally, the outgoing Trailblazer is a very nice-looking compact SUV. And uh, the current three-quarter ton Silverado, depending on your grill color options, the blacked-out grills look much better. But general consensus, now that they've been out for a couple years, they've, you know, they're being considered as a good-looking truck. Um, so to get back to this era, um, it's very interesting in my opinion. Before you go back, I actually have a question. Yeah, of course. So, uh, you're talking about how a lot of people didn't like the Pontiac Aztec. Oh, people hated it when it came out. As to the way it looked, right? Because Oh, they hated it. Oh, God, yeah. Because it kind of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of looks like a box on wheels. It's a, it's a very quirky looking car. So... If you look at the Pontiac Aztec then, and then, oh, what is it called? The, I think it's a newer, it's a newer vehicle. It's, it's from 2020, 2021. Is it in the General Motors line? No, I don't believe it is. Um, it, the Discovery, I believe it's called. I think it's. Oh, called. yeah, the Land Rover Discovery, yeah, I the think. Land- now, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you think that the Land Rover Discovery looks like a blown up Pontiac? I'm going to have to look this I mean, don't you think it kind of looks like a like a blown up Pontiac a little bit? Like it just looks like a Pontiac, but it's bubbled. I can kind of see it. The thing with the the outgoing Discovery is, um, Ford like, used to own Land Rover, so they kind of just made it a 
squintier looking explorer. Um, I do know what you're thinking of. I can't remember the like name the of the, the of my back head. hatch. I'm talking about like where you go. Oh yeah, open the, up back the back hatch. Like it looks like a bubble. Instead like of the eclipse, pushed in, the eclipse cross. Instead of pushed in, it's just out. Yeah, like the eclipse cross. I think from Mitsubishi. That one. If you look at the rear of an eclipse cross. It looks almost identical. It's a more rounded-off version of the back of a Pontiac Aztec. It has two taillights sitting across a rectangular, blacked-out section with a little rear spoiler and then a sloped top end uh, or a sloped top hatch that has a big glass um, window on it, essentially. So I find it I find it very funny that... Um, and a lot of people do say that the Aztec was ahead of its time, but... I don't want to make this whole episode about the Pontiac Aztec. It was just a kind of a similarity that I drew. But that a lot of, um, of design choices um, that, you know, weren't liked by Pontiac and other brands are now coming back with other brands and General Motors themselves. Um, but another thing is um, my personal experience with this era. So, personally, I've owned, God, I can't probably six or seven General Motors trucks from this era, all in the 90s, um, which actually predates this a little bit. So a bunch of CK trucks. Um, Lexi, you've actually had an O2 Grand Prix, and I know you actually really loved that car when we had it. Do you want to kind of talk about that car a little bit? <laughs> so <laughs> when we, so I guess this was, kind of both of us had this car. So it's a 2002 What Pontiac exactly Grand would you Prix. want me to talk about Oh, how reliable it was. Do you remember the crap that we put that car through? The crap that we put it through or the crap that I put it through? Oh, no, this was a team effort. This was <laughs> definitely a team effort. So we bought this um, O2 Grand Prix from this really nice family, um, and they had actually owned two other Grand Prix before this car. So we get there, and it is a dark blue um, Grand Prix GT four-door um, 3.8 liter, naturally aspirated, not the supercharged one, which phew, I wish it was. But so, <clears throat> essentially, we're we're buying this car, and it's for pretty darn cheap. And it has 299,000 miles on it, and it's just sitting out in the driveway, just parked on the street. Hasn't been running for a couple weeks, he said. So we get in there, and I go to start the car, and it just fires right up. No, no nothing. And you go. And start up, and there's no warning lights on the dash. There's no ABS light on. There's no check engine light on. There's no brake warning light on. Um, the only thing that was really wrong with it is that he didn't think the heat and AC worked. Yeah, so essentially that, that was basically the, and the, the cheapness of it was, the, or the why window, it was so cheap. And the window didn't work. Yeah, one of the rear windows didn't work, and the the blower motor wouldn't kick on. You'd, you'd flick the switch and nothing would happen. So... Long story short, we get the we get the car for even lower than what he's asking, which I mean I'm talking about like a couple hundred bucks here. You're welcome. By yeah, the way. Lexi ended up doing some more shrewd negotiating to get this cheap car for an even ridiculously cheaper price, um, which I won't disclose right now. Maybe in a future episode, but we get it home. We drive it all the way home, no issues. It drives fine, and I actually kind of drove it hard on the test drive just to make sure that everything was good, and. Uh, had it as a daily driver for both of us. She would take it back and forth to school. I would take it back and forth to work when I wasn't driving one of my trucks or my trucks were, you know, getting work done to them or whatever. 
And the only thing we ever had to do to it was a, uh, a power string pump, I think, was the only thing we had to throw in it. The power string was starting to go out. Well, and that one piece. And the... What one piece was that? that? That little piece that you had to throw in it. Oh, for the... Uh, the heater control, the little yeah. knob. The little knob on the heater control broke, so we fixed that. And I had it um, at the place that I worked at one day and had one of my buddies in the car. And we were just kind of screwing around, hanging out on lunch break or whatever. And then I kind of brought him over and was like, yeah, the blower motor on this thing doesn't work. And the blower motor on those cars sits in the passenger compartment right underneath the glove box. It's basically just sitting right there. So he goes, and I look at him, and I'm like, why don't you just kick it once? And he looks at me and he's like, all right, screw it. So he kicks it and I turn the fan on to high and it starts blowing. And I'm like, and we look at each other and we're like, no way, dude. We did not just fix this by literally banging it with our feet. So then I'm like, okay, the heat, the heat starts to work fine. It starts blowing hot air. And I go to click the AC button and you can hear the compressor kick in and it starts blowing ice cold air. I mean like ice cold air. And you got to remember, this is a car that I bought, you know, I saw three pictures on Craigslist and, you know, just bought, not sight on scene, but basically drove it around for five minutes and was like, yep, this is the one, we're taking this. And well, if he would have taken it for a lower price, which he did. Yeah, if he would have taken it for that lower price, which he ended up doing anyway because they had two others and they just, this was the highest mileage one they had. So... We actually owned that car for about two years. Um, it was more like three. It was almost, yeah, two and a half, three years. Um, put a power string pump in it and ended up selling it with, I think, 320,000 miles. It was up there. Yeah, we took it on like a, f a five-hour road trip with no issues. It was a great car. Just And they had taken you know great care of it, of course. But And that goes with any car... You know, if you're going to buy a higher mileage car, at least make sure that it has a good maintenance record. So, currently, I have my 99 Suburban, which has 292,000 miles. Drives like a dream. It's got a couple little issues. Uh, most notably, it needs a little bit of rear end work. Um, I think one of the outer bearings is starting to go out on the rear end. But it still drives fine. It's just more of a nuisance than anything. Um, and it's got, you know, almost 300,000 miles on it, you know, transmission shifts good, which everybody loves to complain about the 4L60, which is the four-speed automatic that you will find in the Astro and the pickups. And I believe the Camaro had it too, basically any four-speed um, automatic that was a half-ton truck or a car, you know, they had to use this. And the, the 4L60 came out in... 1993 that's when they started calling it a 4l60 because um 93 was actually the first year that that transmission was electronically controlled in 92 um i believe they were still referring it as the 4l60 um but in 93 it's called the 4l60e because for electronically controlled so and that's it's basically a further development of um the uh 700R4 transmission, which coincidentally is the same transmission that is in my 84 Camaro. So, as long as you take care of these things and you stick to maintenance records, um, if it's higher mileage, you know, service it earlier. I think GM recommends 
the first trans service for that era is like 80,000 miles and then it's 160 and then it's um, every um, year after that. You're just supposed to do it once a year, I think. Um, same with the driveline on those trucks. You're supposed to do it, I think it's 80, 160 and then uh, every year after that. And if you do heavier stuff, you do it twice a year. So really not a... Um, it, GM really doesn't recommend a uh, tough um, maintenance schedule. Um, same way with um, <clears throat> the cars. Um, I actually had my first car, actually, coincidentally, was a 2001 Oldsmobile Alero with a um, <clears throat> 2.4 liter, the 2.4 twin cam is what they called it. Um, and this was one of my not-so-great experiences with a GM-made car. Um, we bought it, or my parents bought it, with uh, 54,000 miles. I had it basically all the way through high school. Um, it blew a oil pressure sending unit, which caused most of the oil to leak out of it, which gave it, basically it was low on oil, had to replace it. Um, I didn't drive it for long with low oil, but it just kind of started getting worse after that. Um, it was already leaking and burning oil at about the 60 or 70,000 mile mark. It needed both front hubs replaced by 70,000 miles, and my parents ended up selling it with 72,000, um, with basically it had been sitting for a, a while. But it was a lower miles, miles car, and you know, people will pay a little bit more for an older car that has lower miles on it because they feel as if, oh, well, it hasn't been driven at all, it's probably in good shape. That's not really the case necessarily. I would be more keen to buying um, not just a car from this era, but any car, period. I'd be more keen to buying a high-mileage car with good um, maintenance records than I would be buying a low-mileage car that is slightly older with um, not-so-great maintenance records. And that'll be another episode, too, where I'm... I'm going to talk about purchasing used vehicles. That's another episode I want to do. So if you do like um, the podcast, obviously check out my other um, two episodes that are out right now. And uh, stay subscribed for uh, future episodes. Um, but continuing on with this era, um, you have the 5.3 Vortec comes out in this era, which is essentially considered the best um, V8 platform that General Motors has. Why? Um, and see, this is where a lot of people will <clears throat> get into it because there are a couple different eras of, uh, of this V8 or the Vortec V8. So the, <clears throat> the Vortec series actually starts in 1996 and that starts with the, um, essentially the CK trucks. So you have, um... The 4.3 V6 um, was considered a Vortec series in the early 90s. And um, it actually relates to the way that the, um, the cylinder heads are made. Because GM's claim was that the cylinder heads are made in a way that the compressing... Um, the compressing fuel and air makes a quote-unquote vortex effect that 
um, increases the power made and the efficiency. So, <coughs> excuse me, that started in the early 90s with the V6. Um, the V8s, I believe, basically came around in 96. And that was the 5.7. In 1999 and 2000, as they were phasing out the CK trucks, it went down in displacement to 5.3 liters because GM figured out with um, a new basically a new intake system, a new intake design, that they can make more power with a smaller displacement V8 and be more efficient so that they can meet um, emissions regulations. So the engines get a little bit smaller. Um, essentially, the 4.3 stays mostly unchanged as far as um, displacement, but the intakes change. It's where you get that traditional... Um, a throttle body the throttle body injection goes away actually there's no more spider injection after 99 um, it's all um, I guess multi-point fuel injection because there's there's an injector for every cylinder on the vortex series so I guess yeah it would be multi-point uh, multi-port fuel injection so um, <coughs> excuse me the uh, the reason why it's considered the best era is because there is hundreds of thousands of them in junkyards. You can get them still for pretty cheap. The prices are getting more and more, um, or they're going up and up. But um, generally, you can find a half decent one in a junkyard. Maybe buy it for five hundred bucks, put a thousand bucks into it. And you can probably get a motor that makes four to five hundred horsepower that you really didn't have to put much work into. Um, there's dime a dozen of them. They're basically bulletproof from the factory. There's a couple little issues you got to fix. I know sometimes the uh, the oil sending units will will go bad. The oil pumps can go bad if they're you know not you don't change oil enough. The pumps get all gummy and they fail. That's actually what happened on my 93, I think, was the oil pump got gummed up and it wasn't giving it enough oil pressure, so the truck developed a knock in it. Um, but, I mean, you see them put in everything. There's a reason why they, well, why the saying is, LS swap the world. I mean, and a lot of people argue, well, the Vortec isn't an LS engine. It's different. The LS is only came in Camaros and Corvettes. It's like, the Vortec and LS engines are pretty much the same darn thing. The only, In what sense? Well, the architecture is all the same. You can take um, Corvette heads and you can throw them on a 5.3 truck motor and they will bolt right the fuck up. They will pretty much not even... I don't think you have to do much modification at all. I gotta take a drink of water there. I'm a little bit under the weather, but I, I wanted to get this episode out. So... um. It is really like working with Legos. You can interchange just about whatever you want. You can take a 4.8 block, 5.3 heads, get a 6-liter intake off a Corvette, do um, Corvette um, valve springs and top end, put a Corvette cam in a 5.3 truck motor. And that's how people will build these motors. They just start taking shit, the best shit off of what they want. So let's say you want an iron block... Um, that's a 5.3 that came in a one-ton truck because, you know, maybe the one-ton truck you feel has a better maintenance record. So, you grab the iron block out of the one-ton truck, you want 
Vortec heads off a 96 Corvette. You also want the top end and the cam that came from that Corvette. You want the intake manifold out of your buddy's uh, 4.8 that he blew the bottom end out, but the rest of the motor's fine that you got for free. You can just throw all these parts together and make yourself a pretty, uh, pretty powerful engine for not a whole lot of money. And it's really the the best way to um uh build a reliable um well a reliable car or project car that you want to have fun with like a track car i mean you see these things put into bmws people like put them in rx7s because the rotaries rotaries always blow up um sorry for you rotaries guys but you got to figure out how to make good apex seals um and you know it's also a very smaller, or a, a pretty small package for what you're getting. There's a famous picture uh, that floats around the internet, and I believe um, it's a Nissan four-cylinder next to a 5.3 Vortec on two different pallets. And I'm sure most of you guys listening have seen this picture, but they take up the same amount of engine base space. And you're talking about an inline four that probably at the time makes what 170, 180 horsepower, and then you're talking about this 5.3 truck motor that weighs almost the same, if not less, and takes up the same amount of area that has twice the cylinders and makes twice the power. So it's like, <coughs> why the heck not? Screw it. Throw it in your RX-7 and make a crap ton of power. It's it's really a versatile tool that you can have um, for your project car. And so, that's one of the reasons. Another reason is um, the um, prices of these cars still yet today are pretty darn cheap. And you can get yourself a good, reliable car from this era of General Motors... You're not going to need to spend $2,000 on maintenance or fixing it before you can actually drive it. You can just buy it outright, pretty much fix nothing, drive it as is, and you have a good car for probably $1,500. Heck, you find a good car, low miles from this area, you can get a nice one for three grand with under 100,000 miles. And you don't have to worry about, you know, the computers failing, the, you know, today's cars, you know... I was talking to actually one of my um, friends that I work with. He's an older gentleman, but he's been working on GM stuff since the early 90s, essentially. And I think the newer Tahos have like 32 different modules that can fail. And in these mid-2000s, it's like four or five. You know, you've got the airbag module, um, the ECM the ABS module, and that's, you know, pretty much it. A stability module, maybe, but that's usually linked to the ABS module, so there's not a whole lot uh, to go wrong in these era of vehicles, and they're still very fuel-efficient and reliable. And the styling is still, you know, it's a little laid back and you know, bubbly and round, but you can still make a good-looking truck or a good-looking car from this era. 
I mean, the Corvette, you know, the last ever uh, Corvette to have the pop-ups is the C5. You've got the Blazer. If you want to build a cool um, off-roader, go buy yourself a Blazer and lift it. So, hold on there before you move on. Yeah. You mentioned that it was <coughs> bubbly and round. Well, all of the but cars from this era are kind of bubbly and round, though. You'll, you you'll see that You wouldn't say they have more straight edges? I would as say far from... As the exterior goes? No, I would say from the um, early 2000s, it gets kind of round. So, I mean, if you put... Let's start with the Silverado, because, you know, I'm a truck guy. So, you'll look at the CK from the mid-90s. Straight front end. straight. Yeah, that's what I'll get to. So, straight front end, straight sides, straight box, straight cab. And then you'll go to the redesign, which is... The which is still considered a 99, I think they were calling it the CKs were called the classic, and then these were the Silverados. So you'll see in 99, they still have the double headlights with the big chrome bar, but this is all rounded off. You get nicer lines of the hood, oh, the cabs rounded off. It, like the things go, they intertwine a little bit, yeah. They're a little bit more rounded and kind of you know, the front bumper wraps around a little bit more. Even the rocker panels start to curve underneath the truck a little bit more. And stuff like that. Do you think they maybe did that for aerodynamic purposes? Oh, 100%. The biggest thing is you have to remember with this era is the EPA is getting uh, more and more involved every year with, um, you know, pollution and whatnot. And yes, I understand why we have the EPA. I just don't like some of the things they implement. So... Aerodynamics is a big thing. Um, the I don't know if it was the first truck to be developed in a wind tunnel, but it was it was one of the first. So the square body truck, or trucks I should say, was actually one of the first trucks to be developed in a wind tunnel. And then obviously the CKs built off of that, and then the Silverados got even better with that. Same way you'll see with um, all the uh, the passenger cars too. Um, and go look. Um, I encourage. Um, listeners to go look up look up a 99 chevy lumina versus like an 85 monte carlo okay full-size four-door sedans look at how round and um like very um not sharply curved everything is and then go look at an 85 monte carlo everything is straight edges and boxy and just really um, like sudden, like the, the, the hood is just a big old rectangle that cuts down in front. Well, you could even that do that in terms of, you know, Camaros. Oh yeah. Look at the, um, look at the early 90 Camaro to the late to the, the late nineties Camaro and the early 2000 Camaro. You'll see it's got, you know, it's a big oval. The body's a big oval and the cab is basically a big oval, but you'll see the front headlights, um, are cut in. Um, kind of like the third gens, you have those two headlights sitting kind of back in the grill or in the nose. And then finally in the late 2000s, or the late 90s, they ended up um, rounding off that front end. So, you know, aerodynamics comes into play with this era. You have everything switching. Basically everything at this point was um, multi-point fuel injection or throttle body, you know, throttle body injection, stuff like that. Um, 
And well, they were also trying to keep up with their competitor, and at that time it was Ford. Well, yeah, Ford and Dodge. And, of course, everybody, when the end of the 90s hit, it was like a fresh start for everyone. So, uh, I think Ford ended up doing redesign of their lineup. Dodge and Chrysler did it. Um, well, all to, the foreign manufacturers did it, too. To add in there, didn't a lot of Asian manufacturers come into the American market in the early 2000s? Yeah, and they had kind of been um, coming in ever since, well, ever since the... Uh, the uh, oil crisis of 73 is really when they started pouring in. And finally, you know, American manufacturers were getting back on their feet in the 80s, 90s, and then 2000s. Um, but then um, what's interesting is Chevy cuts a deal with uh, Toyota to start making compact cars for them because GM didn't want to fully spend all that money in basically... Re, um, remaking a whole new line of compact cars. So the Metro and the Prism are um, Toyota-based, I'm pretty sure. And the Tracker is just um, is Suzuki-based, um, essentially. Um, and uh, I think... I don't know if it was Yamaha helped with some of the development of some of the engines, I'm not sure. That might be... Uh, I think Ford was actually the one who had Yamaha help them with some of their higher output V6s. Um, but if you notice a trend in this era of engines, most GM engines are pushrod um, engines. So the V8s are pushrod V8s. Um, the four cylinders have... Um, I think there's, most of them are dual overhead cam or single overhead cam. Pretty simple. The, the V6s are pushrod. Like the, the, um, the 3.8 V6, especially the Gen 2, you'll see. Look at how much similar the intake manifold on a 3.8 liter V6 looks. And look at the intake manifold on a 5.3 V8. You'll see they almost look identical. But the 3.8, obviously, is just missing two cylinders. So everything is very uniform across the lineup of vehicles. And this makes um, finding parts and maintaining those vehicles a heck of a lot easier. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and like I said, in my personal opinion for this era, if you're looking for a used car right now in this crazy market where everything is marked up, you can't go wrong with a mid-2000s full-size sedan from General Motors. Uh, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Chevy, um, whatever brand you want to pick, whichever style you think is best, you know, put, you know, I wouldn't spend more than three, $4,000. That's kind of pushing it for a car that's 15, 20-some years old. But you're at least going to know that you have a reliable car that you're pretty much not going to have to worry about if you buy one with a little bit lower miles and when i say lower miles low miles to me is 140,000 and under if you talk to some other people it's under 100,000 and then it's under uh 70,000 is what they consider low miles to my parents they consider low mileage to be like 30 40,000 to me, low mileage is like 140000 That's low mileage. 
high mileage to me is when you crack um, 220 on a vehicle, that's high mileage. Um, it is not uncommon to see every single vehicle in this lineup from General Motors crack 160 with no major issues. And the Pontiac that we had, and this is a real testament to um, um, Buick actually designed that 3.8 liter. This is a testament to the Buick designers because that V6 design was around since the 80s. And they used it all the way up until the death of Pontiac. And beyond, as far as I'm, you know, the 3.5, or the, the 3500 V6 and the 3900 V6 is built upon the same architecture as the 3.8. They just needed to modify it to fit the emissions regulations of the mid-2000s. So it's a real testament that that engine was you know, so good in every aspect that they didn't have to make very many changes throughout its life cycle. And, you know, it's, it's a real testament. And you look nowadays, I mean, you know, you have issues with cars that have 60, 70,000 miles on them. You know, you know, bearings are going bad. Engines are having problems. They're throwing engine codes. And, um, it's like the other day, and we're gonna get a, we're, we'll get into this in a different episode. But, um, like the newer Silverados, they have an active grill shutter system, which is for aerodynamics and fuel efficiency and such. But um, essentially, what this shutter will do is it will open and close automatically depending on how you're driving, whether it's highway or city or whatever, and it helps with fuel economy. Well, there was an issue where if road debris got caught on that shutter, it would throw an engine code. And we actually had a truck come in for this um, just a couple days ago. And you look up online and General Motors fix is to just cut half of the shutters off, which negates the whole reason General Motors designed the system in the first place. So it's like a total oxymoron that this didn't need to happen. And, you know, you look across the lineup of... You know, the early 2000s, all the way to 2007, essentially, you really don't have a lot of these major issues with every single model that GM had in its lineup. It's just really not there. Of course, you have some suspects. You can say the Ford L60 is unreliable, but, I mean, that transmission, as long as you take care of it and you're not pulling 10,000 pounds with your half-ton Silverado every day... It's going to last to at least 120, 140,000 miles as long as you maintenance it. That's a, you know, a big thing is maintenance the vehicles. You know, even the oil that these engines take, you know, they don't require synthetic oil because the oil passages are still designed big enough with standard oil in mind. Now, of course, it's not going to hurt to run synthetic oil, but you don't have to if you're on a budget. Nowadays, every single new vehicle requires um, at least semi-synthetic or better. So it's going to cost you, you know, 50, 60, 70 bucks just to get your oil changed. It's crazy. You can change oil in um, one of these Silverados for, you know, probably 20, 30 bucks if you can do it yourself. Even if you take it to a shop, at the most it should be is 30, 40 bucks. So it's just another thing to keep in mind from this era. 
if uh, if you don't agree with me, I encourage you to hit me up on Instagram uh, at shitboxes and Chevrolets. All nah, no spaces, all lowercase. Um, you can hit up Lexi too. She'll be linked um, probably in the bio or one of my um, posts. I believe. What is your? Do you know your Instagram handle off the top of your head? It's Lexi one two one six underscore. So Lexi one two one six underscore. Hit her up on there. She does some great um, photography that she's actually done for me too. Um, yeah, if you ever wanna, you know, hit up any questions for the podcast either. Um, in the future episodes, um, next I think we're going to be tackling um, the recession years, so 2008 through 2013, and all oh my gripes with that. Um, that will be a little bit more scripted than this. Um, after that, we're going to be talking about the Silverado redesign and the current direction of General Motors. And then I hope to have a couple of uh, my mechanic friends on the show and give their take on um, Ford and Dodge, Chrysler. Um, i got a couple buddies that will come on, and i got a couple buddies that will come on for uh, all you uh, JDM fanboys. So be sure to uh, hit follow. Um, this will uh, should be up on Spotify and a couple other uh, sites. So wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure you follow me on there. And I uh, look forward to seeing or uh, hearing some of your comments in the next couple episodes. So... Uh, this will be Brandon signing off for now. And Lexi, give the guys a goodbye. Bye. And we will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening.